Uh, we are um, doing a, a summary and overview of Genesis it, through my dynamic, because usually I have one passage and I have like 100 pages to cover, so I, I had to do some external notes and I pray that uh, God brings this through. Father in heaven, thank you for each and every person here. Thank you for those who could join us online. We thank you for bringing us here safely. Thank you for the water, for the thirsty land. Even if it comes in frozen form, we'll still take it, Lord. Thank you for uh, the babies we're dedicating today. Thank you for um, the, the Betts family who we'll be praying for. Thank you for um, the word that you have for us this morning. And thank you for the worship that where you'll meet us this morning. Lord, meet us in your word. We submit to you. We have uh, nowhere else to go. We pray that you open our hearts and our minds. And Lord, for the things that are fearful or unknown, Lord, give us courage because you are king and you tell us how the story ends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we, have, we started in March of 2021 in Genesis. And I remember there were some very um, uh, awkward expressions when, way back when we were uh, wrapping up James. And I said, hey, guys, I think we should do Genesis. And the teaching team was like, really? Genesis? What's in Genesis? And I hope you've found, as we have, there's a lot of gospel in Genesis. There's a lot of really, really... Um, true things. And I think the timing of it came from the Lord. It wasn't something that I was, it wasn't something that I had a personal interest in teaching at that time. It was something that I felt very led that we should teach. And I hope that you can see why. And, I, and with, the, with today's sermon, then um, hopefully that'll come home even harder. This is my 80th and last sermon for the foreseeable future. So it's a, a great privilege and honor to be able to speak to you all again. It's um, it's been just an incredible blessing in my life to be able to teach here at Aletheia. I never, ever, ever thought I would be preaching from a pulpit. Never intended to, never wanted to. I liked scripture. I liked teaching in more academic formats, but I never saw this. But I've found out it's been a great joy in my life, and I'm so thankful. And I, uh, I've, it's made scripture very alive to me and made God's love for each of you very alive to me because it's an opportunity for me to serve you by studying and by um, interpreting and by praying and by bringing something for you whenever it's uh, time. And God has always, always been faithful in that, and I'm so thankful. So even if I never preach again, then it's, then it's been good and enough. I think I will. I don't know when or where. You guys can stop asking me that. I don't know. Um, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know if there's a plan. Meanwhile, um, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit today because... Well, what are you going to do? Leave the church? It's not. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, it's. Uh, it, and but it's it's also because it's it's what I think you should hear, and and so, for those of you who are visiting for baby dedications, I wish you luck. Um, if what I'm saying sounds like total craziness, then go back and listen to some of the early. Gen they're all online. We'll keep stuff online. Go back and listen to the Genesis overview and some of the early stuff because this is the direction we've been going, and we found a lot of surprises in Genesis, a lot of things that talk more about the end than about the beginning, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of perspective that is really powerful. So if you just want a summary of events in Genesis, then just take your Bible, open to chapter one, and just flip through and read all the headings. I'm, I'm not going to do that. It's about a hundred, a timeline of about a hundred things that happen. But Genesis takes us um, from creation all the way through 
to where the, it, the, the blossoming family of Jacob, which becomes the nation of Israel, enters into Egypt under good circumstances. Bad worldly circumstances, but good personal circumstances. And then it stops. And the very next book is Exodus. And Exodus fast forwards around 400 years, give or take, and says, okay, now things got really bad in Egypt, but God preserved them as a nation by having them surrounded by Egypt who couldn't stand them, so they didn't intermix with the people, so they're a single cohesive people, something that wouldn't have happened in the land of Canaan, and now he's going to bring them back out to their land, now that they're at a critical mass. And that's the book of Exodus, and as you know, he raises up Moses, and um, you know, very worthwhile study. I'm sure if we went through that book, we'd find a lot of good stuff there. But that, that's the, the span that we covered, and it's thousands of years of history. There's some argument about exactly how much, but the older texts make the, the older uh, texts that we have make it look longer, not shorter. So there was a long time between Adam and Abram. The perspective I want to take Adam and Abram. The perspective I want to take on Genesis is the perspective of God's family. There's a Genesis is about families, and it's about families within families within families and growing families and families becoming nations, but all coming back to this family of God. And what we learned what, that was so surprising was that God's family is bigger than we think. We read these things in Scripture. You know, we read that God, one of God's names is the Lord of hosts, and people seldom stop and say, what hosts? It's not people. He has a bigger family. And there's a family that dynamic that is playing into what humanity is and what we are and, and our family dynamics. So I'm going to use that framework to try and bring into high relief the plot of God's family as we learned through Genesis. That doesn't mean we're going to cover every single highlight in Genesis. We did a deep dive on every single event and every single chapter and more or less every single verse in Genesis, but I'm going to pinpoint the framework of the family. So... The first thing to consider, and you, this should sound familiar if you've been attending, is Genesis has the story of three different falls. There's the fall of man, the fall of the sons of God, and then the fall of the nations. Does that sound familiar? The fall of man's in chapter 3, the fall of the sons of God is in chapter 6, and the fall of the nations is the Tower of Babel, and that's in chapter 11. The very next thing we have after chapter 11 is God draws out a family for himself. So we're going to review some of that. So in the, um, in, in the, the, the thing to keep in mind with the fall of man is remind yourself who Adam is. Adam, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, that's one of the genealogies of Jesus, is listed as a son of God. That's very important because there's a class in Scripture called the sons of God. And we see it a couple of different places, and we'll spend a little more time on this. But you get in the Old Testament, you have this phrase that comes up called the sons of God. Now, don't worry, this isn't heresy. We're not saying that Jesus isn't unique. He is the son of God. He's the unique, the powerful son of God, but he has a family. That's in the Bible. It doesn't get taught on very much, but it is very much in the Bible. Because Adam, you can look in your modern translation, Adam is listed as a son of God. And there's a fall in that son of God. And that's the Adam and Eve story in the garden. Then you have the sons of God showing up again in um, chapter 6. You guys remember that crazy sermon? Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they went and they took of them as wives whomever they chose. And that caused all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems such that it ultimately resulted in the flood. That's the chronology of what happened. You had that, that time, and there was a long time gap before the flood, but ultimately God draws out a family to preserve the human line and wipes everything else out. Then you have the fall of the nations. And the reason why, well, we'll come back to it. You have the fall of the nations. The fall of the nations happens at Babel. It's after the flood, and it's uh, after Noah's, you get the, the Noah's family comes off the ark, God reestablishes his covenant with humanity and with all living creatures. You remember I preached that when wearing the rainbow shirt. And, um, and then, the, uh, he, then they, they come together, the, the nations come together at this place called Babel, and they say, we're going to ascend to the heavens. And what they were really doing is building a temple but in addition to building a city, they were building a temple so that they could return to their relationship with those sons of God who had fallen. They were trying to establish themselves in the heavens. And God said, no, 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 we're not doing that again. This is not my plan. And so he scatters and divides them through confusion. And we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, you can look it up if you want, but we spent some time in this, that at that time, he assigned the nations according to the sons of God. So these nations were assigned to parts of God's family. That sounds weird, doesn't it? But that's what it actually says. It says when he divided the nations, when he scattered the nations, he assigned them according to the sons of God. And the next thing he does is he says, and I'm choosing one for myself. That's the very next thing that happens. He calls this guy named Abram, and he says, you're going to become my nation my nation, my inheritance. And then when Moses gives the synopsis of the history of Israel, he scolds them, if you go on through De Deuteronomy chapter 32, for going after the wrong gods. He says, those aren't your gods. You have a god. Stop going after the gods of the other nations. Some of you who haven't been attending are like, what is he talking about? It's all in the scripture. It's all there. This is the overarching cosmic battle that overarches scripture. And this is why scripture is constantly coming back to the titles of things like the kings of the earth, the nations, the inhabitants of the earth. I want to stretch your mind a little bit say, those aren't just political people. Those are the people, the, the, the family of God that has control and power over different elements of the earth. And the story of scripture is that he's saying, I am reconciling all of that back to myself through Christ. And this is why Jesus calls himself the son of man. He is the son of God, but he's the, the human representative. He's the son of man. So Jesus is the preeminent son of God. He always has been. He always will be. There are others in that divine family that don't like it. That's why we get the pictures in Genesis of brothers not liking that one brother is better than the others. So Jesus is the preeminent son of God. In Revelation 1.5, he's called the firstborn of the dead, and he's called the ruler of kings. Again, what kings? He's called, in other places, in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel calls him the prince of the princes. He's the prince among the princes. And Daniel is very specific about there being princes that are very territorial and have different national uh, responsibility. So Jesus 
Also in Revelation 19.6, or uh, yeah, 19.16, he has the name written on his thigh, and it is the King of the Kings, the Lord of the Lords. So you have to remember that the civilization that we have here on earth is a shadow of a larger civilization. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's not an ethereal thing. It's an actual kingdom. It has place. Maybe not exactly how we understand place, because I think our understanding of place and space is a, is a subset of place and space, but, that, but the kingdom is real. It's more real than any civilization that we have here, and it functions. If you want a little brain teaser, I heard somebody, uh, I think it was Timothy Alberino, say recently, he said, you know, remember how the, the Israelites wandered in the desert and they were given manna, and that is called the bread of heaven? So his question was, do they make bread in heaven? Because what do you have to do to make bread? You have to have a civilization. You have to grow, you have to harvest, you have to make. I don't know. I'm not making a theology on it, but it's a good question to ask. When the Bible says something's real, is it real? And I say it is real. And we're supposed to be oriented to that because everything we have here is a reflection and a shadow of something bigger and more true. So you read these prophecies, and yes, they're true on the prophetic level, on the specific individual political level, but they're also true in the big overarching shadow level. So when God talks about things like the, the, the mountains melted like wax, did that happen? Yes, it did. He said it did. But does that mean we understand when it happened? Not necessarily. When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven to earth, did that happen? Did Jesus actually see that? Did we see it? Not that we can recall, but Jesus said that he saw it. So when we think about Jesus, he's the preeminent, the one who created everything. He is assigned creation. And you can see that in Colossians chapter 1. It says that all things were created by him and for him and through him and through him all things are held together. He's different than the other families, family members of God's family. He's also, uh, he predates creation. He himself was not created. He's part of the, uh, of the Trinity. Everything else after that was created. Now then you get these weird things like in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10-ish where it says, at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow. And we're fine with that. And then it says, in heaven. Like, okay, there are people in heaven, sure. And then on the earth, okay. And then it says, and then under the earth. Okay, what is that? What, they're assigning three levels, heaven, earth, under the earth. It's very specific, and that's not the only place it says that. So what I'm trying to lay on you right now is Genesis makes it clear to us that God has a family, that there was conflict in that family, that man was created for a specific purpose, and that some of the rebellious members of that family have chosen to try and take over man's purpose and destroy man in the process. And when God calls out his special family through whom he's going to redeem everything and draw it back to himself, then there's an ongoing spiritual effort to try and destroy that family. And we went, to how many times was the, the original Abrahamic line threatened with total destruction in, throughout Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all faced these existential crises where God had to intervene on a very powerful level to draw them out. And is he going to do the same thing again in Exodus? Yes, and it's going to be a cosmic battle. So I want to return to creation. What happened at creation? Everybody knows, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. 
and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. Great. Take the homework sometime, go get, a, go get a Hebrew concordance, and look up every single word in those verses, and look at how they're used historically, how they're used in the rest of Scripture, and how, they, how they're really interpreted, because we lose a lot in our English translation. It just sounds like, in the beginning, God made everything. Good. Now, here's the earth, formless and empty. We don't stop to ask, what does that mean, formless and empty? Why would God make something and have it be a chaotic wasteland? The words he uses to describe the earth in Genesis chapter 2 is this Hebrew phrase, tohu abohu. It's fun to say. You can all say it with me if you want. Tohu abohu. It's fun. Tohu abohu. It means wasteland, chaos, without form, and void. Now, this is where I'm pushing the envelope. Everywhere else that phrase is used in Scripture, and it's not very many, it's describing a place that has been under spiritual punishment, destroyed, and abandoned by God to supernatural creatures. Does that sound strange? Let's go look at it. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 13. I always tell myself I'll mark these things beforehand, and then I don't. It's all right. Isaiah, if you get to Psalms, keep going to the right, but not too far. If you get to Jeremiah, you went too far. Okay, Isaiah chapter 13. I'm going to just show some strange pieces in here across 13 and 14, and I just want you to listen for that weird cosmic plot that can't possibly apply to just humans. Hear the other members of God's family in this. And I'm going to skip through, and I'm going to stop on certain words and let's see what your translation says, and then we'll talk briefly about what they actually mean. Isaiah 13, I'm just starting verse 3. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones, and I've summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. Okay, fair enough, right? Then you go to verse 4, partway through. The Lord of hosts, there's that, that weird name again, what hosts, is mustering a host for battle. The Lord of hosts is doing his host thing. He's calling his hosts. Where's he calling them from? They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. Okay. The, it's not a typo. It's what it says. I looked it up. That's what the Hebrew says. He's calling them from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. What happens when he destroys the land? Get down to verse 21. Wild animals will lie down there. Their houses will be full of howling creatures. Now, this is this tohu abohu state, and he goes on to make that clear in chapter 14. So he's describing this wasteland, this void and waste. Their house will be full of howling creatures. Now, that sounds like, okay, what howls? Well, I don't know. Coyotes howl. Maybe it's a desert. Well, when you look up what that phrase really means, what it means is the screaming creatures from the wild islands, which is way creepier. And then it says, and their ostriches will dwell. They have no idea what that word ostriches means. They just picked a bird. <laughs> and their wild goats will dance. Who, whose translation says goats? Does anybody else say anything different? Goat demons. There's another. It's not wild goats. The word is satyrs. That's what it is. The, the Septuagint translates that as those weird half-goat, half-man demon creatures. 
Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Again, we don't know what those words actually mean, but they're almost always used to describe these weird supernatural demonic creatures. I'm going to skip down into 14. Um, he says uh, in verse 6, that this king, he's calling it the king of Babylon, verse 4, and he says that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. You can cross-reference Psalm 82 to see God scolding the nations and the rulers of the nations saying, you're doing a really bad job with the nations that I gave you. Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Now here, listen to verse 9. Sheol, beneath, is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades, those are the Rephaim, to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the, la the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit by the mountain of the assembly, that you can translate that into heavenly council. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. And they say, is this the man? That word man is not the normal word man. It means the champion who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let prisoners go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb but you are cast away from your grave, and we can keep going on. But the point is, is that a man? That's not a man. That can't be a man. He calls him the king of Babylon. You go up into uh, verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the host that he's bringing. And I will cut off from Babylon the names and remnants, descendants and posterity, declare the Lord. I will make it a possession of the, they just went with hedgehog, because they have no idea what that means and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see these things like owls and hedgehogs and things like that, owls is Lilith. Who knows who Lilith is? She's a demoness. Brian knows all these. <laughs> She's a demoness. It's not an owl. It's a demoness. She's represented by an owl, so they just go with, oh, the owls will be there. Well, there's a little more to it than that. So what's the point I'm making? When you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that phrase in the beginning just means way back when God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes fast forward to now the earth was formless and empty. And I'm convinced, maybe I'm wrong, I'm convinced that a lot happened between verse 1 and 2. Now, there's been a huge backlash against that because that, that gap, and some people call it the gap theory, has been totally weaponized just to raise the debate between old earth and young earth. I have zero interest in that debate. I don't, I don't care. Because Darwinian, Darwinian evolutionary theory is collapsing, it's imploding, the new generation of scientists that are coming in are already going with panspermia and astrobiology to try and explain it, because the more we learn about ourselves, the more we know Darwinian, Darwinianism doesn't work. But people have used that gap theory to say, okay, here's where your billions and billions of years are. I, I'm, I have no interest in that. I'm not interested in that. I don't think, I, I believe that man is, follows exactly the creation timeline that God describes from Adam all the way through to Christ. I, I buy that timeline completely. That is the timeline of civilization. I don't buy that there was a whole evolutionary process there. 
And if you want to have that conversation, we can. But the more you look at the amount of time and the lack of evidence for any actual civilization, you've got to go like, oh, they had ag agriculture 30,000 years ago. And then we found the first city that's 10,000 years. What were they doing for 20,000 years with agriculture? There's a, there's, it just doesn't add up at all. So that's my rant there. But I do believe there is a gap between Genesis 1 and 2. Because, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, because when Adam and Eve get into the garden, there's a fully formed fallen opposition in place waiting to destroy them. Also, we read in Job chapter 38 that the sons of God, that's that weird phrase again, were shouting for joy as they watched God and the creation of earth and man. And what does God say when he creates man? He says, let us make man in our image. That is not, people try to say, oh, well, that's just him talking to the Trinity. There's nowhere in Scripture that God does that. He doesn't talk to himself in the plural. He's talking to himself and his family and his council. He's saying, we're restoring the earth from some desolate wasteland of chaotic punishment. We're restoring it to order and light, and I'm putting in our image this creature that's made of earth, and we're going to let this creature be part of our family. We're going to call him man, and what's his job? To rule the earth. That's his job. You can see it in, I'm way off my notes now, but it's over here someplace. You can see it in uh, chapter 2 when God says, let us make man. It says he will be ruling the earth and given dominion over it. The job of man, and I don't mean the pure reason for existence, but the job of man is to rule and extend God's dominion over the earth, starting from Eden. So that's what's going on. We have, um, if you want to make, let's just go, I want to give you a couple more places for this, just so that you know I'm not going way off the reservation. Go to... If you want another cross-reference, by the way, on that Tohu Abohu wasteland, you can spend some time in Isaiah 34, uh, especially verse 11. It specifically has the Tohu Abohu phrase there, and it goes on to describe weird, creepy creatures living in this wasteland. Now, I want to just, if once you start opening your eyes to these kinds of things in Scripture, you start seeing them a lot of places where there's a lot of passages that make more sense from this perspective than they make otherwise. One of those is Jeremiah 4, 23. Ask yourself if this is before man or after man. I looked at the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. By the way, when it says without form and void, that's a tohu abohu spot. Behold, there was no man. All the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord in his fierce anger. What happened? Something happened that laid the earth a completely desolate, broken wasteland. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. There's a, we can keep going on into some um, parts there. I think I had one more that I wanted to expand into. 
Well, you can take the whole passage of 19 through 26, but I'll stop there just so we don't run out of time. So something happened between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 that left, the earth without form, that left the earth without form and void. And if you say that that wasn't true and that all creatures were, all creatures including the heavenly creatures above and below and all that were created on that somewhere in that day one and that there was four or five days between them and Adam, then you have a lot of explaining to do with some other parts of scripture that say they were there watching, they were there rejoicing, they were watching the restoration of the earth, and also how did the entire spiritual fall of Satan happen in like three days? Because he's, he's there in the garden. So God has his own family after the, uh, after the, the Tower of Babel, so the, we'll go through the, uh, the fall of man, Satan tempts man, he brings them into death, they're cast out of Eden, and you have to keep in mind Eve is walking around in the garden, and to her, it's perfectly normal that there are things like talking reptilian creatures. That's normal. She's not surprised by that at all. So Eden was this crossover place between different classes of beings. And that, by the way, that's, a very, that, that's the ancient Hebrew interpretation of Eden. That's the ancient Mesopotamian interpretation of Eden. It's the Ur and Chaldees interpretation of Eden. They all agree that there was a place where there was a crossover between heavenly and earthly creatures, and that it was normal that Eve would be able to walk among them. So you have that fall. Satan tempts her away and says, you can become like the gods. You can become, you can join this Elohim class if you want to, because Elohim is just a class of being. It's used as a name of God, but it's just a describing a class of being. There are others in that Elohim class. We see that in Psalm 82 and Psalm 2 and a handful of other places. Doesn't mean that there are others who are like God, but there are other supernatural beings. We get to Genesis 6. You get a section, a subsection of these uh, sons of God, and they leave heaven. And Paul says they leave behind this thing called their okaterion. That's the Greek word. It means their habitat, their body. They leave it behind so that they can enter earth. Why? What does man have that they don't have? God's, well, they're in God's image, I would argue. What does man have that they don't have? What did God make specially for man in the garden? Women. There's no other creation account that goes into great detail on the creation of, of woman being separate from man except the biblical account. And I think you can, I'm, again, pushing the envelope, but I think you can make an argument that they're saying, we can't have offspring. We, God didn't give us this, this thing. You don't hear, and Jesus actually specifically says, there is no male and female marriage and, and family and offspring in heaven. He says that. So they don't have that. And I think they're jealous. They're jealous, and they see, and they say, I want that. And they're willing to leave heaven to go get it. And that's what they do in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. By the way, every single ancient account of creation from any pagan land that you can find has that story. That something came from above, interacted sexually with people, and the other thing that they brought was a lot of knowledge. They taught men and women how to do things. And this is where you get things like divination and sorcery. But they also taught them a lot of practical things. The civilization of Babylon gives all of the credit for everything that it was able to do to what it was taught by these beings from heaven. So that was the fall of the sons of God. And in between, you have this, this arguably two to 3,000 year period, 2,000 years-ish, 
where that flourishes. Now, the Bible says, describes that period as great sin and corruption. You know what everybody else describes it as? If you read every other ancient creation account, as the golden age. That's how they describe it. This is the, that Atlantean age that, that Plato alludes to and some other historians. That this, there was something here that was this beautiful, powerful civilization. The problem was mankind was being wiped out in the process. And the more you get into what was going on at that time, the more you get this, this crazy supernatural description of these, these giant crossbred uh, what, what God calls um, abominations, abominable creatures that he never wanted to be made. And the book of giants, which is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually explains that what was happening is they were genetically modifying and crossing creatures so that the spirits would have places to live because they want bodies. That's what demon possession is all about. They want a body. And it gets so bad that God says, we're going to wipe this out. And he draws Noah is in Genesis chapter 8. He draws Noah, and what does he say about Noah? He says he was pure in his generations. He was a man through and through. He carried the genetic lineage of man. And apparently, that was a hard thing to find. He was also a righteous man because he wasn't engaging in the rest of that. God draws him out, puts him on an ark, wipes everything out, says, starting over. And that was a terrible thing. And if you want a whole bunch more color on that, you can read the book of, uh, book of Enoch, which I, I do recommend as reading. It's not part of Scripture, but it does help you understand what was in all the ancient Hebrews' heads because they all knew that book. And so it, when you get these allusions in Scripture to these events that the book of Enoch describes in great detail, that was the source material that they had. So God draws out this family. Well, he, he draws out Noah to preserve humanity, and then the Tower of Babel happens where humanity comes back together and says, we're going to try and rebuild that civilization. And he goes, not this time. How does he do it? He scatters them with different languages. This is something anthropologists have a really, really hard time describing as this sudden explosion of languages all over the earth, seemingly without origin. They don't seem to have this common language. They don't all come from the same root. It's just boom, 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 boom. You have these completely different languages that just pop up in antiquity. So you have this explosion of languages, he scatters them, and they go off to the nations. And as I said before, uh, Deuteronomy 32 tells us he assigned each one according to the number of the sons of God. Then he gives us this story, this vignette, as he draws out his own family line. He gives us this vignette called the story of Joseph. And what is Joseph? He's this favored brother who is destined to rule over his brothers, and they hate him for it. And so they try to kill him. They really, really don't want him to. They try to kill him, but what happens? He winds up being their salvation and their provider and establishing a kingdom into which they all have to submit. Does that sound familiar? There's a reason we have this detailed story that no, every time they think they're ahead, he's st God's still ahead. And we talked about how that big picture is really, really important. I'm going to give you a couple of places to consider in Psalms. We can have the worship team come on up. I'm going to give you a couple of places to consider. One is Psalm 82. Some of you know this is a pretty classic place. God has taken his place in his divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
Weird verse, right? If you haven't heard that before, you have to stop and say, what is that saying? It's saying that God and the gods all get together from time to time to have conversations, and he's the one in charge. Does that sync up with what we heard in Deuteronomy 32 about the nations? It does. And what is he saying? He scolds them. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness, and the foundation of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. That sounds a lot like that Isaiah passage we read, doesn't it? Where it says, you're going down to the grave of Sheol, and they're coming up to meet you. That's, that's not what it, how it describes the death of men. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Then go to Psalm 2. And I'm going to come back and talk about this a little bit. Because what is this all building up to? This is all building up to a massive conflict, isn't it? There's no way there's not going to be a war with this um, premise. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Which rulers are these? These are the supernatural rulers. They take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, think about how much this sounds like what Joseph's brothers were saying about him when they took counsel together to try and destroy him. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So say, these, these gods are saying, we don't want to serve this God anymore. We're going to break out from under him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a, that broke, broken and crushed like a pot, like clay, shattered and burst apart, is a very common motif in the Old Testament. You know what it was, just to creep you guys out a little bit, if you're not already, you know where it lines up all the time, is with something called Rahab. There was something called Rahab that was blasted apart and caused tremendous destruction on the earth. Now, the Bible doesn't go into detail about it, but if you want the opinions of a lot of other ancient civilizations, they say it's a planet. And that planet was described in great detail. We've got these 4,000-year-old documents explaining how the solar system is laid out and where there used to be a planet that was shattered, and that's where we find the asteroid belt. They knew more than we know. We think we've discovered everything in the last 50 years. They've been talking about this stuff for thousands of years. You can find old Babylonian documents that tell you about Neptune and Pluto and where they are and what they're oriented and what their color is and that one of them has rings. And all the scientists said, that's silly, it doesn't have rings. And we got out there with the Voyager spacecraft went, oh, wait, it does have rings. Imagine that. So something happened way, way back when, pre-man. And then God built man and restored and created this 
restored the earth to this beautiful thing, took the chaos out of it, brought it back to order, drew out dry land, created everything on it, and then made this thing called man, said, let us make man in our image, and we're going to put him in charge of the earth. And I want him to be able to populate and have offspring, so I'm going to give him a wife. And most of them shouted for joy and rejoiced. Some of them didn't. And they said, I want that. I'm taking the wives. I'm taking the earth. And we've had to live in this conflict place ever since. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's sing this first worship song together, and then I'll come back with some conclusions and to lead us in communion. My last time in front of you, so I'm going to tell you what I think is really going on. <laughs> there was a cosmic rebellion before Adam. I might be wrong, but I, I think that's what's going on. And then there was corruption of the earth post-Adam. And a lot of it has us at this unfortunate center because we were the ones created to have dominion, dominion, dominion over the earth. That was our job. But we've ceded that dominion to others. That's why idolatry is a really bad idea. There were fallen members of God's family who participated directly in that corruption. If you want to, you can go to 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, and it explains what happens to them. It says the offending sons of God that came and caused all this corruption were put in prison. And it uses a special word for prison that, according to Greek mythology, is imprisoned in a special supernatural place. Those sons of God had had offspring with the daughters of men, and those were called the Nephilim. The Nephilim, as God destroyed, and they tried to bring them back afterwards as well, because it was still going on, because it says it was happening before and after the flood, were these abominable creatures. But most of all, they were spirits that weren't supposed to exist, because the sons of God had taken it upon themselves to create something by co-opting the wives of men that were not made for them. And they created things. And you can go through all the ancient literature, all the ancient carvings. I've been to several of the sites. And they have these abominable creatures all over the place. And there's remarkable consistency across continents and civilizations that never should have had any contact with each other, but can all agree on certain types of supernatural creatures. Some of them were very cooperative, and some of them were extremely destructive. So God destroyed the bodies of the Nephilim, but their spirits continued to walk the earth without bodies, and we call them demons. And when, they, when Jesus shows up, they know exactly who he is. They can see something about him. They can instantly recognize him, even though he's just walking in a normal human body, because there's a, there's a whole level of sight that we don't have. There's a lot going on around us that we can't see. Paul says it very clearly. He says, we see dimly. He says, we see like a darkened 
glass. And they didn't have glass. He would have, he would have been talking like a polished brass for reflection. He's like, it's like it's dim and dark and you can barely see what's going on. We don't get to see it much. But they could see Jesus. And what, what were they afraid of with Jesus right away? Yeah. They said, whoa, whoa. What are you doing here? I know you're going to judge me. I know I'm doomed and condemned, but it's not time yet. I'm supposed to still be walking the earth miserably with all the lusts of the flesh, but none of the ability to satiate it. That's what Enoch says. That's why they want bodies. So they know and recognize the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus. Jesus defeats death. That's why he's referred to in that Revelation 1.5 as the firstborn of the dead. It's a strange thing to call him. He defeats death, and he offers something to us, exactly as we were just singing. He offers us adoption into, back into God's family, to be restored through him back into God's family. That's what salvation is. Can you see why the devil hates you so much? You're the reason he can't have what he wants. Really, it's Christ is the reason. But the only thing he can do is try to keep Christ from having you. That's why he hates you. The nations and the kings of the earth, as we read in Psalm 2, are prophesied to wage an open rebellion. And in that process, there's something that Jesus warned us about that is a great deception. He says, in those last days, there's going to be a great deception. I believe that that great deception is fundamentally going to be there's a way to salvation that does not include Christ. And it's going to be very much like Eve was told in the garden, you can become this thing that you feel like you're supposed to be. You can have this ascension into something more than this broken human uh, vessel, but you're going to have to become something new. And that's going to be through some form of transhumanism, which if you haven't spent much time looking to that, you probably should because it's happening now. I think it's going to come through the whole extraterrestrial conversation, which is very much heating up. Congress was talking about it this week. It's not, if you, there are two kinds of people when it comes to the extraterrestrial conversation. Those who laugh it off and say there's nothing to it, even though the Bible says there's a lot of beings that aren't us. And those who have actually taken a look at it to do the research to see what's going on and what people are saying. This is, it's, a, it's a major, clear, and present threat, and something is happening now with it. And there's going to be a deception in there. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a, a false narrative where we can attribute our salvation to something a little bit above us, because Psalms 8 says that we're a little lower than the angels, if only we will worship them, which is exactly the same choice that Jesus was given. If you're not going to take that choice, you can expect oppression because then you're going to be the reason holding humanity back. And I think as we get closer to the end, Jesus is going to be openly acknowledged but hated. The great apostasy at the end is not just people not believing in him because all the angels and devil believes in him. The, those who hate him believe in him. Those demons knew exactly who he was. They know. But the apostasy, the falling away, is going to say, I don't choose him even though he's real. I'm choosing myself. That's what Eve chose. And it culminates in Armageddon. Armageddon is a war against 
Christ. It's an open, kinetic war. Those of you in the military know, know what it means when it goes kinetic. It involves weapons. It's a bloodbath. And Jesus himself rides into battle, and it talks about the blood flowing as high as the bridles of horses. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in there, but there is an open kinetic war coming. That marks the end of the age from the birth of Christ. And I am convinced I could be wrong, and that's fine. I think we're right at that tipping point. And I think almost everybody can feel it. You can feel a spiraling towards something, Christians and non-Christians alike. I had a uh, conversation earlier this week with a pagan witch. She was very excited. She's like, everything's waking up. It all works. It didn't used to, and it does now. And everybody I know feels the same thing, and they're, and they're all coming back. Now, there's a couple of responses to that. One is you can be, just say, I don't want to think about it. And that, that's okay. I mean, it, it's, it's fine as long as you know where you stand and that you know that you're going to be challenged. Another is, I'm scared to death. We just sing it. You don't have to be. Jesus wins. He wins in the end. If you want to read specifically about it, go read uh, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. He wins. And what happens at the end in this destruction is they open a book and they look and see whose name's in the book. Your name's in the book, you're part of the new kingdom. If your name's not in the book, you're not part of that kingdom. You're on the losing side, and that's not a place you want to be. It's not described as a pleasant stay. How sure are you, are, are you that you're in that book? Jesus says we can have total confidence in him, but have you ever had that conversation with him? Are you willing for the sake of Christ, to not hold on to your life so tightly. And that could mean two things. That could be having your life threatened or just having the opportunity to live a lot longer. You just have to, you know, become something else a little bit to do it. There's just a little bit of allegiance that has to be given away from Christ. You just got to make a commitment somewhere else. There's something kind of feels like idolatry, but they're not going to call it that, but that's what it is. And that can, and then you don't have to have death. Then you can live a long time. That'll be the promise part of it. Are you going to hold on to your life so tightly that you're willing to make that trade? Are you, are you going to be willing to risk the, 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 the ridicule and the ostracization and the blame for all the ills of society for the sake of allegiance to Christ? Because the rest of the world's going to increasingly hate him and hate everybody who loves him. And in fact, it gets to the point where it says, they will call into the mountains and crawl into caves and say, I would rather be crushed and buried in this cave than have to face the Almighty God or Jesus Christ. That's, that's what's going to happen. I think we're getting rapidly close. I don't know if it's this generation, but it feels like this is either the generation or the setup generation. So these are choices that we're going to have to make, things that we're going to have to live with. And I'll, I'm going to come back to a passage that we go to often. This is in Romans 8. Paul, by the way, understood all of this. He talked about this stuff all the time. He's the one that tells us where the battles really are and who our enemies really are. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The children of God will have glory and freedom. But meanwhile, there's frustration and corruption. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then wait for it with patience. You're going to have to have something to hope in. And you're going to have to be prepared in Christ to say, Lord, when that fear comes, cover me. Help me through it. That is the weapon of the enemy is fear. Some of you know that. Some of you have faced a supernatural fear, a crushing, paralyzing, freezing level of fear. Some of you know how that feels. And that gets weaponized against you. But remember Christ cast that out. What shall we say then? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is at the right more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good, isn't it? Because we're going to need it. You got to know this book. You got to know that the narrative you're being fed it won't be true. Where does the beast come from in Revelation? There's two of them. Where do they come from? Out of the land and out of the sea. There's a reason it talks about things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. And you're going to be lied to about it, and you're going to be told that it is the great salvation. It's not. Salvation's in Christ. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, these people who you love so much, who you love so much, Lord, protect them. Protect their minds and their hearts. Fill them with scripture and with truth. Fill us all with your scripture and with your truth. And Lord, let us face with, with joy, with rejoicing the things that panic the world because we know that it's showing that our book is true because you are true. And let us be the, a place where people who are, who are afraid and disoriented in the world can come and find orientation, truth, calibration, answers, and what to expect and what to know. Lord, light up this body 
and send us out to be lights in the world. And let us know when, we're, when the deception is trying to deceive us. It's already trying to all the time. Let us know truth, hang on to it, not become an enemy of people, but be beacons of, of love and courage and joy and gentleness and kindness because Jesus wins the fight on our behalf. It's already won. And if you are somebody who isn't sure if your name is in that book, isn't sure if you're in that kingdom, that's between you and God. That's a conversation you have to have with Him. And what it is is, well, are you, are you, are you with Him or against Him? Jesus said, those who are not with me are against me. So there is no indifference. There's no gray area. Come to Christ. If you don't know how to do that, come find me afterwards. And we take communion to remember that we're in Christ and that we live by his flesh and by his blood, only in him. Father in heaven, bless these people. Bless these sons and daughters of yours. May your face shine upon them. May you strengthen their feet. May you open their mouths and their eyes, open their minds, strengthen their hands. Lord, cover them in the day of fear and the day of battle. Cover them. Lord Jesus, may they be comforted in truth. May you protect and provide for them all the days of their life and call them with joy into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.